All right, we're back. It's February 19th, 2021. We're here in Studio 3 at Sunset Sound. It's a beautiful day here to be at Sunset Sound. We have a great round table. Studio owner Paul Camerata, musician, legend, Dweezil Zappa. Yeah, not legend, but musician, sure. <laughs> and former staff engineer, Peggy Mac McCreary. How are you? I'm good. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This is home. <laughs> yeah. Yes. How does it feel to come back into Sunset Sound when so much work and history and emotion and sometimes the smell, you know, it's like especially walking into this part. I mean, the buzz of that gate, walking through the slam of the gate, and then here it's just like, oh, here you are. I mean, I, in ten years, I probably spent twenty five. <laughs> yeah, you know, in hours continuously. Yeah, I mean, it's just it was nonstop at that time. Everything was. I mean, what, the studio was booked, the block out time was 12 hours, and then after 12 hours, anything after 12 hours was free. So 15-hour days were pretty normal. You got three hours free, so 15, 18. Yeah. I think the longest I ever worked with Prince was 24 hours round the clock. Wow. And that was kind of scary driving home when everybody's <laughs> caffeined out, rushing home, and you're going, oh, my God, just get me home. <laughs> I was so tired. He actually told me he went home only because he knew I needed to sleep. How courteous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thoughtful. Wow. Yeah. You're from Blythe, California. Oh, yeah. Yes. Pretty happening spot in the oh, middle yeah. of the desert, the Hollywood oh, yeah. of the desert. <laughs> what initially brought you to Los Angeles? Uh, um, when I went to college, I was going to college. Um, I, I had to get out of Blythe. I was going crazy in Blythe. And, um, Population 20,000, roughly. Well, yeah, you know, it was like, you know, I was 18 years old and there had to be more than, you know, shooting up stop signs and running on the ditch bank. And so I went to school in Riverside and realized, and I always thought it was a people in Blythe, you know, oh, it's just these small minded people. So I went to Riverside and I realized it was just more of the same kind of people that was just more of them in <laughs> Riverside. And uh, I was going to college there and, uh, we went to, a friend of mine and I went to see a band in Hollywood, and um, they were all from Blythe. They were musicians from Blythe. And um, I ran off to Hollywood with a conga player. <laughs> conga player. <laughs> okay. And supported him. Worked at the Jolly Roger right down here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember that? What was yeah. that? Oh. It was uh, like a tiny was nailers, you know, as a coffee shop with cocktails. Yeah, cocktails. I didn't get the cocktail. We had to wear those little pirate uniforms. Yeah. And yeah, that was that a was, popular place. Yeah, it was. A lot of music people. And um, David and I Frank met Frank Demidio over there. Really? <laughs> to design Prince's board. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was it was kind of the happening place. It had it was I can't remember the name of the building now, but um it had a bunch I of I think it's a CNN building. Music offices oh, upstairs. Yeah. On Kalinga. Yeah. 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 2000, oh, I can't remember what number it was, but um, yeah. So I was working there and learned the hard way that you don't wear a short skirt walking home to your apartment up on Whitley and Franklin. <laughs> Sketchy. Oh my God. I didn't realize that, you know, if you wore shorts here, I grew up in a bathing suit and cut off shorts. You know, that's what I wore five months out of the year. And maybe some flip-flops or yeah, barefoot. Because it was 112, right? Yeah, 120. Yeah. 120. 120. Yeah. And uh, and I came here and wore shorts, and I had never 
seen the attention that you, everybody thinks you're a hooker. I mean, <laughs> seriously, they pulled over all the time. I got grabbed on the street. It was like, Jesus. oh my God. Yeah, it was really frightening to me being a small town girl coming to, to Hollywood. Well, that Hollywood. doesn't sound good at all. No, it was. You know, it was actually the first time in my life I ever felt normal. I looked around and I went, I'm fucking normal. You know, when you look around Hollywood, you're like, you know, you're okay. I felt very normal and I never felt normal in any place I lived before that. So that's kind of frightening, I think. <laughs> well, you found your place. I, I found my homies. Yeah. <laughs> Was that your first job in Hollywood? It was my first job in Hollywood. And then you worked at the world famous Roxy, Roxy which is yeah. owned by the Adler family. Yeah. Still to this day, Nick Adler owns it. And um, I you... was I was sick of that job. I uh, I ended up some stupid jerk in a polyester suit um, tipped me a penny after giving me a lot of grief and a huge check, and he tipped me a penny, and I chased him down. <laughs> And blocked the elevator, and he went like this, and I threw it at him. Here's your penny. <laughs> I said, you know, leave For nothing you. I can pretend you forgot, but this is an insult. And I thought, mm, I got to get out of this work. <laughs> yeah. So how did you make that transition to then getting into? I can't remember. Um, I can't even remember how I went to the Roxy. I just went in there, and because I... I interviewed for the job, and because I had been a waitress before, I got a big old star by my name. Because most of those girls, oh God, can I say this? Lou Adler's girls were want to be actresses. Yeah. And then there was um, Elmer, who. Elmer uh, Valentine. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was one of Mario's girls, and we were. Oh, Mario from uh, Rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. Mario hired me, and we were workers. You know, we hustled. And um, the other ones didn't, didn't know how to make change sometimes. <laughs> it was pretty funny. So I worked there for, and my girlfriend, I got my girlfriend a job there. And I worked there for about three years. Oh, wow. And then, or two or three years. Is and that the I, early 70s? Or? So 72, three? Uh, my, first, my first show was Jimmy Cliff. Oh. And... Uh, Went all the way up. Boss Gags did his Silk Degrees. You know, we had record company parties. Those were great because the tabs were free, you know, and we got tipped on them. And um, and then I was there when Bob Marley and the Whalers did One Night and all of the Beatles were there in disguise. I never looked up. I never saw the stage. I have never seen that place so packed. Wow. So um, the police care, the fire department came in and told Mario to shut it down. He said, find me i'm not shutting down this show <laughs> wow. so then i kind of look around That's and i'm waiting on <clears throat> i'm waiting on rock stars and you know um movie stars jack jack nicholson and all those people and you know it's like okay i'm 20 what two years old 23 years old and i thought is this it i mean is this as far as you go so i started taking classes um what was the sound masters brian inglesby was yeah. he yeah, and because um, he was an ex-engineer here. Well, there was a guy. There was a little. There was a guy at Warner Brothers Music that said, "You know, be an." I said, "I love working around music," and I got an ear. And he said, "Then be an engineer." And I went, "Nobody. They don't have girl engineers." And he said, "Yeah, I know a couple." Lenise Bent. He threw her name out at me, so I started taking classes at Soundmasters. And um, was I that would, in the Valley and Magnolia? I can't remember. I think North Hollywood. Yeah, God, I was just working. My I think that's out. where it was. Yeah. Yeah. But I took those classes and during the day, and then I, 
I asked Mario if I could help set up the sound and learn. So I was help setting up the live sound during the day and then waitressing at night because you learn for free. You know, he was a good old Italian oh, guy. For free. Yeah. <laughs> Got to put in your. Yeah. So um, I met somebody that worked here at Sunset. He was doing a show. And he said, if you're serious about this, you should get a job in a studio. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. That was to. a musician you met? No, he was an engineer here. His name was Tim. I can't remember what his name was. Oh, okay. But he told me there was a gopher position. And uh, he gave me the number and the address. And I came down and applied and got the job. And so worked wow. here five days a week. And then worked at the Roxy four nights a week. And that was what year? 74 or 5? Wow. Okay. I mean, you could look at my paychecks. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I've got them in my office. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could look at my paychecks. Yeah, pay let me stuff. go look those. Yeah, we yeah. kept those. 75 but, bucks a week. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Big money back then. Yeah, and I was drinking Morning Thunder. I would I would get up. I'd work till 2 or 3 in the morning at the Roxy, hustling like crazy. Fall asleep. Get up and come here by... Had to get up by eight, be here by nine. Wow. Work till five, go home, shower, take a nap, get all dressed up to. And then work the night shift at the Roxy. Well, that's a long day. Oh, my God. So I was pretty burned by the time I started this, but um, yeah. Do you remember who was training you here? Nobody was training me. Well, they they must have had like a little punch list or something. Like well, I was, I was to take tape inventory. Mm-hmm. And mic inventory, and go around and make coffee. That kind I'm, of well, I or run errands. I remember yeah. one of the first errands I did was for David Anderley, yeah. and I was supposed to drive down some god awful place like Industry City or uh-huh. oh, I don't remember where it was. I had no air conditioning in my little truck, and uh, I was supposed to go to Tiac and pick up his reel to reel. Oh, off the freeway there. I remember where that was, like City of Commerce. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was pissed. Uh, I was hot. And I remember driving into A&M and I looked at him and I said, here's your tape machine. And <laughs> I was so pissed. That was awful. I wasn't good at being a step and fetch it. I just really was. My attitude wasn't for that. But um, anyway. Mm. And it was actually him that um, got me in the studio the first time. It was him. Yeah. Because he was... You remember Kent Nebergall? Sure. He was setting up a Chris Christopherson record. He was coming in and he was crazy. And he said, Peggy, can you help me? And I said, sure. So I was running around getting his mics because, of course, I knew all the mics from the inventory and stocking him up on tape and getting coffee and all that. And he and the band started coming in and it was summertime. And I, I swear I didn't learn. I didn't transition well from being a cocktail waitress to a, to the studio. <laughs> So I had on cutoff shorts, and remember those Dr. Scholl's sandals, those little high-heeled sandals, and a little girl's undershirt. And that was all I had on. And I was coming in, those country boys were coming in. All of a sudden, I just felt naked. And uh, Kent said, Peggy, thank you so much. I bent down, I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, and I said, okay, I'm gonna leave. And Anderley grabbed my arm, and he said, who are you? And I said, I work, you know, I'm here, I'm the gopher. And he said, well, I don't know who you are, but you did really well at helping in my session and I want you on my sessions. So I said, you're going to have to talk to Bill. Yeah. So he went in and talked to Bill and he came back and he said, Bill said it was fine. 
And I said, you know what? I'll be here tomorrow and I'll be dressed for the session. So I came in, you know, fully clothed. But, oh my God, those cowboys, I felt so, so naked. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so that was my... And so then that's I, how you get a break from David. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just sat in there and learned as much as I could. I made, you know, I printed out lyric sheets and what did David say? He said, you have studio etiquette. And, you know, that's a hard one to teach. You know, I kept my mouth shut. I just observed everybody. And I knew when they were hungry before they knew they were hungry and always had coffee or something. You know, I, it was just that's the way I got into the studio and just learned all I could. Did you feel that, you know, as a young person, when I found what I wanted to do initially, did you feel like you had arrived kind of that this is really oh, okay this was still I was a, flying a by the seat of my pants yeah i was scared to death were you inspired at least that you oh it was, yeah i mean chris christopherson yes. was my first album that was awesome you know and he was such a gentleman and then we did chris and rita i saw a whole nother side of him then and he was married to rita at the time yeah. right yeah, yeah. They, and i don't yeah. think things were going real well and um that was that was interesting and then we did rita you know, and that was a whole nother. So yeah, I did album after album. And then Anderley gave me my first shot at being first chair. Oh, he did? Mm-hmm. But he did wanted... you already start uh, with the training at the place? Uh, sort of. Sound masters? You yeah. know, they kind of showed you what a mic did and they showed you, you know, an XLR. But I really, I didn't really know that much so you didn't know anything about the console or any of the routing configurations and i or... didn't say a word either i just watched and observed that's all i did and so when you got second chair were you in a panic or were you no because it's an assistant only they only got tape and you know ran you know i mean it wasn't like i had to ever sit there and do anything i could just watch but um, and then some engineers require required more, you know, they wanted you to punch in and things like that. So, you know, I just kind of learned. And once I felt comfortable, I started doing it. Then I started editing once I felt comfortable. So it was, you know, like Landy didn't want you to even touch the tape machine. At least sometimes you rolled it back and started it and, you know, did the legends and everything. But, um, yeah, I just sat there and observed and. Wow. Did you get the full technical workup at some point where you knew like, okay, I can align Slowly, the tape machines? Well, I, I had to all... align the tape machines. I learned yeah. that and clean them and, you know, all of that. So I was getting the basics and, and learning, you know, just by keeping my mouth shut. In fact, one of my favorite stories. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember Eric Benton? <laughs> Absolutely. Our chief tech. So I did, I was doing this thing with Prince and um, it was 1999 and I had just done crossfades with Anderley on an album. And so I introduced him to crossfades. Well, studio three, I mean, studio two only had three inputs to the wall or four inputs to the wall. Mm -hmm. And I needed six because we had two formats. We had half inch um, two track half inch and two two track quarter inch because he brought some from Minneapolis, so we were and I was I had six ATRs in there, wow. right? So I was like moving them around and you know patching like crazy and it was like three o'clock in the morning and and uh, it was my suggestion that we do this crossfade. So I I it was the half inch so I pulled all the machines in and I patched them really fast and we did this crossfade and I cut it in and Prince sat there and he went, 
that doesn't sound, that sounds bad. That sounds wrong. And he got frustrated and he left. And I thought, oh. so I <laughs> went home and I thought, what the, what the heck? And, you know, cause I was working, you had to work fast and I was his engineer and assistant. Yeah. So, um, when I got home, I went, oh my God. So what I had done when I was putting in the machine is I had crossed the left and right. Oh. So when we crossfaded, it didn't, it didn't sound right. So I came back in that next morning really early and I repatched and I, um, and I redid the crossfade and cut it in. He said, let's listen to what we did last night. So I played it and he said, oh, that sounds great. I don't know what was wrong last night. <laughs> I never told that story until after he died because wow. I knew he'd never forgive me for that one. <laughs> well, it was a long day. Yeah, it sure. was. But also I didn't know what output and input was. Mm. So I asked very quietly. I didn't want to ever let anybody know that I didn't know very much. So I just so, kept my mouth So you were shut. the actual recording engineer working, setting up the sessions, doing uh, like uh, full recordings, mixing stuff. But at that time, you were not asking anyone what the input and output was. You're just like, I think I know what this is. <laughs> so it wasn't until I asked Eric Benton and I said, so which is the input and which is the output on an XLR? And he said, who always puts out? Right. And I went, well, <laughs> girls do. <laughs> so again, I was confused for another few months, never knowing. And the so pins. it yeah. was it was David Leonard that said, I said, which is the input and the output? I had to feel safe with somebody yeah. that I knew because nobody wanted me in the studio. I mean, nobody. And anything that I did wrong, any fuck up was an excuse. Yes. So David said, out is male, you know, out and, yeah. and in is female. I went, oh. So I went for another few months with Eric Benton, you know, and because I was trying to think of his mind and what, you know, instead of, so it was a very sexual kind of thing that he said, but I thought, well, women always put out. That wouldn't fly today. Yeah. yeah. No. And that was very early on. That was the first year or so. When did you uh, first encounter Don Landy? That was, that was Van Halen. Okay, so it was. You hadn't known. You I didn't know him on any session. How did prior. you get on that session? I have no idea. Yeah, maybe you're just available. Yeah, I location. have no idea. I really. And you'd never worked with Don before that. I don't think so. On anything. No, you know what it was? Or, it was Kent. That because Kent and Don knew each other. Yeah. And Kent was doing something else, so I got on that session. Oh, because he was busy. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But at what point were you in your career? You had figured out input and output at that point. <laughs> and so Van Halen comes in and nobody really knows this band yet. No, um, they were so, so young. Oh my God, they so were so you young. Gotta, you gotta tell us what that was like because it, you know, it it's a legendary time for the studio and, and the band did so many things here. But what was it like to hear them play for the first time? And you just were like, oh, I got a job today. And then you hear that. I know. I know. And that's funny because my husband always said, tell me about Eddie's guitar playing. I said, well, he just, he was having fun. And you know, it's like guitar players want to know every, everything that he used. And to me, I, you know, he was just a cute, he was really cute too. And, um, you know, he was just, they were just, fun it was their first time in the studio so they were giddy and silly and fun and except for david lee he was definitely a lead singer 
Now, this was Van Halen 1. This yeah. was not the demos. No, I didn't, didn't do, do the, the I think demos. Kent did the demos. Yeah, I think Kent did the demos. Yeah, I think Kent I did the demos, and mm-hmm. then he was busy, so I did Van Halen. And, um, yeah, I mean, they were just a bunch of fun guys. They were all really nice. Ted Templeman was really nice, and Landy was didn't require any work. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, some engineers required a lot of work. Like, they wouldn't even answer the phone, let alone... It wasn't teamwork with some engineers. You were definitely, you know, the the step and fetch it on the session, you know. Right. But Don was a real he he would prefer working alone, but he didn't work for Sunset. So Right. You know. So we always had somebody in there. Yeah. Do you remember how long the sessions were? We have like roughly a week of tracking. I think it was a little more of okay. tracking. We had um, more work orders than we what did. they the urban legend is they five, were pretty, six days. They were pretty rehearsed because they were, you know, a live band. So yeah. they were pretty well rehearsed. The studio was a whole new thing to them. And that was kind of, you know, that was kind of fun. But um, but they tracked live. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. were that good. Yeah, they were. And then also they started in Studio One, but then you remember there was a lot of tracking in Studio Two. We tracked in Studio, they started in Studio One. That's what our work was kind well, of. Well, I have to look, but yeah, there I was a little bit of work in one, but uh, mostly in two. I got really sick on that session. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember. Mm-hmm. I, that was one of those. I poisoned myself basically. I gave myself food poisoning. You know, I had something in the refrigerator, and it was expensive, and I ate it, and uh, I shouldn't have. And I got really, really, really sick. Mm-hmm. I was sick for ten days. Oh wow. And I remember Templeman said, did you go to the hospital? Did you go to the doctor? And I said, I can't afford to go to the doctor. <laughs> so he sent me, he paid for it and sent he me did. to the doctor. Yeah. Oh, but I had given myself really bad food poisoning. Oh. And um, But you remained on the session. No, I, d- I was home for 10 days. Oh, so, so someone else came in? Yeah. And then I finished it. Do you remember who back. that was? Was it, was it Ken? I don't remember. Do you remember a guy named Gene? Gene Maros. Gene Maros, yeah. Yeah, he did, uh, after Van Halen 2, he did the rest of the records. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. So, but I don't remember who who. Oh, so this might have been later in the the albums they did here. It wasn't one or two when you got sick. No, mine was one. I I only did one album. I did the first album, and that's the only one I did with them, I think. We have some more. No, I got you on on two. two. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's it was just like yesterday. You're like, yes, well, I did one and well, two. You know yes, I do remember now that you mentioned. That wasn't yeah. my kind of music. You know what I mean? It just yeah. it was like, yeah, it was, rock and roll just bombards you. And although, you know, it just wasn't my kind of music. I mean, I could appreciate it, but No, I know. Not my style. It's exhausting. <laughs> and you listen to it for 15 hours a day, it's exhausting. You know, I mean. So before the band ever became known to the world, nobody really knows them. They come in and your interpretation is this music is exhausting. <laughs> no, they were really good. Yeah. They were very good at what they did. And Eddie yeah. was a dream to watch. And they always had a lot of fun. So it was a fun band. I'm not saying that. But, but you know, if you want to pick out music and have me dissect notes and you know stuff like that's like mm, yeah no it was just it was just another session had you seen them at the roxy or anywhere around hollywood before never heard i know of they them. played at starwood oh and uh yeah. Zari's. no and the one on the corner what was the one on the corner of Whiskey? sunset no it wasn't the 
Was it the whiskey? Yeah, they did shows. So there was a rainbow, Marshall, Roxy, and then at the very end of the block was whiskey. It was whiskey. Okay, yeah, yeah. They, I knew they played the whiskey, but they never came to the Roxy. Okay, so then um, for Van Halen two, I do have a few questions about Van Halen one, but for Van Halen two, Don didn't request you to come back and be the assistant. They might have. By then, I was engineering. Yeah, you know, and I was really busy when Prince was here. I was his. I mean. Day and yeah. night, weekends right. and forever. I never saw the light of day when Prince was here. And Van Halen 2 would have been 78. Yeah, that was prior to Prince. Was yeah. it? Yeah. Five years. Well, who was I working with then? Dear God. I don't know. Do you remember when you started working with um, Fogelberg? Oh, God, Fogelberg. Um, and then, I did um, three or four albums with him. Yeah, I know. With Marty Lewis. Yeah. And then uh, obviously you worked on some Toto. Oh, yeah, Toto. Yeah. yeah. Did you work on just four, or did you work on Hydra? No, I just worked on four. Four, yeah. I got fired. I got fired. I got well, yeah. Oh, I got. I didn't got, know that. You didn't know that. No. <laughs> and that's that was a whole guy kind of thing that happened, and so they told whoever was the manager, the Tootie or Bill, that they didn't feel like they could fart around me, but that was what it was. <laughs> and they can fart. I didn't. I didn't like the married guys. Oh yeah, it. it wow. I didn't think it was right. Yeah. I didn't think it was funny. That's. Yeah. I didn't think it was funny. Right. So yeah, that rock and roll stuff didn't. You know, this is work. Let's do that. Let's not do that in the studio. So. Did David Lee Roth ever uh, hit on you? No, but I hit on Eddie. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, good to know. I tried. <laughs> I I talked to him. I hope you can cut this out. I talked to him years later. He and Don Landy called me when David and I were living in Laurel Canyon. I don't know if I was married yet or not, but um, I said, how come I was really blatant? I mean, I never was like that. I never took anybody home from this place. That was a thing that was rough. <laughs> but I was hot for him. Oh, my God. So I said, Ruth, you like to come over and drink some tequila? And he said, yeah. And then he got real weird. And I guess Ted Templeman had said, Nobody touch her. Oh. And I didn't Hands know Hands off. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, he cock blocked me with Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. He was the Nasty. only one I was interested in, David Lee Roth. But yeah, I liked Eddie a lot. Yeah, I thought he was really cute. I do want to try to spike your memory a little bit on the that session of Van Halen 1. Do you kind of remember the... The professionalism in the room of the guys, or was it a party? Were they drinking? Was it there really wasn't drinking? Then? No, it was music. It was all music. And um, Teddy and Don, Teddy was pretty level-headed then. You know, I know he went off the rails a little later, but he he was pretty business. Yeah, then. him and Don. Him and Don were, and Production Don never. Team. Don was really straight. Yeah, and so were all of us were actually at that time. <laughs> Paul mentions that Don uh, was a big helper on the studio creatively. Like he knew was he a genius was about. He was so uh, smart. Yeah, I always. I, that's what I recall about Don is that uh, he was one of those go-to yeah. engineers yeah. that that worked here. Uh, George Massenberg was probably the first. Then then Don to like you know how can we improve this place? Right. What, what should we get? You know what piece of gear? You know, is there anything you would suggest with the consoles, the tape machines, or you know? And he was very helpful. Yeah, and John always really more than good. willing to just, you know, be uh, be a big help to Sunset Sound. Yeah, he was really quiet. He would never, you know, like 
really quiet. Im- yeah. yeah. He would never impose his opinion on you. But if you ask him, yeah, he was, he was a really smart guy. Yep. I really liked him a lot. I gave him shit for that weekend because um, we remixed the whole album in a weekend. I think he knew Which exactly. Which Van Halen what, won? Mm-hmm. And, was uh, that, and that was without Ted. That was without Ted. It was and just Was both. anybody at the band there? No, it was just the two of us. Wow. I wonder how he got around Ted doing that. He just said he needed to do this and he just needed to concentrate. So it was a whole long weekend of just remixing. Wow. And when the, there's cameras not rolling, I'll tell you something that he said that made me laugh. But um, um, anyway, I told him, I said, all I want in life is a color TV with a remote because I lit- I was so poor. <sighs> all I had was this little TV that I would lay on bed and watch TV like this. So after that weekend, and I gave him such shit, he came to my house with a color TV. Did he? <laughs> he did. Oh, he gave me my first sweet. color TV. Wow. Yeah, it was really sweet. He God. said, no remote. Remotes were expensive then, but oh. at least it was it was color. But you had your color. I did. <laughs> so I want to explore that a little bit, though. So you get a call at home, and it's Don, because we have other people who have came in on the show and said that Don would kind of sneak away from Ted, and uh, obviously on the fair warning session. Um. But he called you up and said, I want you down at the studio and help help me remix. I don't Van remember. He, no, he probably, he, he didn't call me directly. He probably called the Just studio. Just booked it. And, yeah. Yeah. And requested me. And then Ted wasn't there. No. Yeah. Wouldn't Ted know? <laughs> he might have known. He or might have afterwards. just asked that yeah. he wanted to do this by himself. You know? I mean, he needed to concentrate. It's hard to concentrate when there's a lot of um, input and energy around, you mm-hmm. know? Other but people. when yeah, and he needed that quiet, and um, you know the guys were young and enthusiastic, and you know I wonder if that mix got. I wonder if that's the actual mix that got released. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, we'll look at. The, I'll look at the uh, work orders. Yeah. A little later, and we'll. I'll look at the dates because it shows them coming back in and doing mixing later, and I always kind of wondered about oh, that. That was it. Yes. It was like what? What's that? Yeah. That was they the, already mixed it. Why are they mixing it again? Yeah. I didn't. So I didn't put that two mm-hmm. to two together. Yeah, he wasn't a, happy with it. I've got a question for you about that mixing process because those records are so well known by guitar fans, music fans, but and they go over all the little details of every little thing oh, that that happened, and so famously the guitar is in the left speaker and then you have the reverb it's it's a stereo chamber i'm assuming that was used so there's a little bit of reverb on each side but you you sense the guitar on the left mostly and and then the the ambience on the other side and edward himself was saying that uh he didn't really like how that turned out because if you were riding in a car you uh. didn't hear him properly on the right side Technically, some of the stuff that we did, no engineer would do because you couldn't do that. But we did it. You know, I was always saying, well, let's try, you know. I mean, I didn't know enough technically to say no, that it wouldn't work. So we just did stuff and tried stuff. We just tried stuff. And if it worked, it worked. Yeah, well, that's pretty much it. I mean, a studio is a sound laboratory. It's like a creative space. So uh, why not do it? I know... At a certain point, uh, when studios 
were first in operation, especially like in the UK, like you had to wear a lab coat and be very, very <laughs> proper and specific. Well, that changed. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, you, you know, nothing could, could go in the red. Nothing could be overloaded. And, well, and that's English, too. You yeah. Know? But, you know, what's interesting is somebody said um, that tape saturation was part of Prince's sound. And I never would let him go by the meters. I said, go by your ears. I mean, just if it sounds good, then go for it. Don't watch those meters. Don't pay any attention to those. You know, and I'd pull the, the stereo monitor down a little bit so that they wouldn't, you know. If we just jump back to uh, Eddie, the, the Van Halen one session, the mixing session. So when you went in with Don to mix Van Halen one, it was just the two of you. You had seen a lot of the recording. You said you were sick, so you might have missed some of the... I might have missed some of it. Ten days being sick from the studio. I never took ten days off, not even for my wedding. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm, lo I'm looking at the dates here on okay. Van Halen 1, and I see that um, actually Kent did a couple of days. Yeah. Jim Isaacson did a day oh, or two. Yeah. And Corey Bailey. You remember him? I remember Corey. Yeah. But I see where we're moving around here um, on the mix. So you originally did the mix like late September, early October. Then In two, right? In Studio One. Oh, okay. uh, Studio Two, they started the mix in Studio Two in September. And then you guys moved over to One and we're doing some mixing uh, through September. Then, or through October, actually. And then it stops, and then he comes back, Don, and does a mix in Studio Two in December, late December. I'm thinking that's maybe that weekend thing that when he remixed the record. Was it how many days? Two. Yeah. Just like you remember. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I remember it as Studio One. <laughs> well, you said Studio Two and uh, before, and then... I mean, it was mixed in one, but then I don't know what they used out of one, you know, and then it's back to two mixes. Well, he was, I had never seen Don struggle and he yeah. was struggling with those mixes. And he, I think that's why we went to one and did the mixes. Yeah. I just remember a lot of, cause you couldn't do anything for Don. He had it all timed down with the, re, you know, rewind and everything. He just, he, what I said, what can I do? And he's like, nothing, nothing. So I sat in that lounge for hours and days, you know, with well, my feet up and just fed them. And, you know, I mean, if there weren't any microphones to change or get or just babysitting, just yeah. babysitting, you yeah. know? So, um, and then we, we, he wasn't happy with it. I just remember he just was really unhappy with it. And so he, he came back in to do the full remix. You helped him set things up and he starts going after this sound that became a legendary album. Now, for me, it's just really interesting to to know that you were around during the the recording and, and to wonder, okay, what was it like? What was the energy in the room like? You were saying they were happy, they were having fun, it was new to them. and They were young. And, you know, the first time in the studio, you know, older, you know, you come in, it's like, okay, here we go again. But these guys were just so happy to be in the studio. It was so, it was so cute and the energy was great, you know? They were really excited. Everybody was excited. And they just did everything quickly too, right? There very few extra takes of things. They mm -hmm. just seemed to capture it yep. pretty much out of the yep. gate. And well, 
getting back to the mix though, once everything was done, the the final picture that we all get to see, the the audio movie for our ears, we we have the guitar on the left and the ambience on the right. And the whole thing became this legendary idea of, okay, that's that's how you have to get this special Van Halen sound. But what really were the ingredients that went into it from the, from the day that it was recorded? Were, were you listening that way with the chambers set up like that? Was that part of the sound from the beginning or was it really dry in the beginning? And then they added that later. They added it later. But I think that's just the characteristic of Sunset too. I mean, that was the thing. Our live chambers were amazing. And oh, yeah. I think that and and also our boards, you know, there was no you could put sound back through them and it, and you you got what you put down on Super tape. Super clean, yeah. yeah. And that Not was color. what was I loved Sunset for that. I mean, that was what it was. You know, yeah. you could really capture a great sound. So that's I think that's was one of the reasons that he came back here to try different chambers. Does it say what we had? Does it say our equipment? I saw no. something on there. Very little on you know back in those days. Not much documented. In the, in the notebook where it has all the pictures, that's the yeah. thing that you may or may not remember. There's these notebooks where the engineers would have to draw a picture of how everything was set up. And that was the only way that you could kind of do a recall. So some apparently you drew uh, uh, the picture of, of how it was set up in the room. But one of the one of the pictures shows that there was a mono delay going to the chamber. So I'm assuming that was something to do pre-delay or... Or some stuff, but the, the super Van Halen nerds, they want to know. I know they do. They, they want to know, like, okay. I wish to hell I would have paid a lot more attention and taken notes, but you know, Damn I was it. just after something else when it yeah. came to Eddie than his <laughs> yeah. sound. Well, it was only forty-four years ago. Yeah, so. yeah. But How long? Forty-four. Oh fuck! Are you kidding me? Forty-three. <laughs> well, seventy-seven. Twenty-one. Forty-four years Pete. ago. Now, what? What? What I want to know, though, is uh, when it came to certain songs, like, were you there for Eruption? Did you hear him playing that? Because the, the big guitar solo song. The, it's the unaccompanied guitar solo. And the the legend is, and this is partially from Ted's book and, and other things, people who kind of were around at the time, was that Ed and the guys were just playing because they were practicing for a gig that they were doing later that night. And they just happened to be recorded by Don. Don had the tape rolling. They didn't really know that they were being recorded. And Ted even walked in and said, hey, are you catching this? Because this solo that Ed plays, he never played it that way ever again. Eruption <laughs> is that way for eternity for that one time. And it might never have been captured if Don wasn't paying attention and the mics weren't all set up because they were just actually rehearsing. And you can tell because that one day when you guys were listening to just the room mics, the solo room they mic, brought yeah. in a, a tape of just the soloed room mic, none, none of the other stuff. And you hear, he plays Eruption, and then they go into You Really Got Me, like it's their live show, which is what they would do. Oh, uh -huh. But any sensible person who would have played something so amazing would have said, all right, I gotta go in the control room and listen to that, you know? But they didn't because they were just rehearsing. But did you ever see anything like that happen where if Ed played something that he thought was really cool, where he'd just take his headphones off and say, I got to come listen to that? No. 
they just played all the time. You know, that was the thing is they were always interacting. It was kind of like the three guys and then, you know, David, David was, you know. In the vocals. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was just the three guys and they always had fun playing off each other. They always, it always looked like they were just having the best time. So yeah, I don't remember that specific story, but that sounds right. That sounds, you know, and that's yeah. what for Don to catch it would be perfect. Well, and that's another thing about working in the studio. So when you saw the way that Don worked with those guys and got the sound, if you were in the room when they were playing versus in the control room listening to what they were playing, how much did it change? Was he capturing just the raw sound of the band? Because having seen the band, I know they that's what yeah. they do sound like, but... Yeah. But people that don't know that much about what happens when you come into a recording situation, so much can change from what it sounds like in the room right. versus the the control room. And right. and Don was really great at making that an organic process, yeah. like really just saying, I want to capture what these guys sound like instead of I want to make them sound like something. Well, no. And that was what I thought was so, that was always my goal. You know, you'd walk out to the studio and you'd think, okay, is this what I hear when I'm in the control room? I wanted that. I, Don was great at that. And Sunset was also very instrumental in being able to capture that. Just but, go ahead. Yeah, because that's such a cool part of the process. And, and I, I'm just curious for you, like, was that one of the things that drew you to music to begin with? To be able to to have that process, the creative side of, of hearing something and say, how can I get that and make it come through speakers so that people can hear it the way. Right. And feel it the way yeah. music is a feeling for me. And that's the thing that I think um, what happened when we started, like when I first got in the business, mm -hmm. it was run by musicians and artists, you know, and then halfway through, I saw it change and it started being run by Suits. accountants and Lawyers. Business people. Yeah, it was Let's a business. Be but I got in the very tail end when it was still an art as opposed to a business. And that's what drew me to it is that what it could, what it could, how it could make you feel when you listen to a song. And that's what always music has always done for me. And that the manufactured music just, I can't, I can't stand that electric light music. I just, uh. I want to just shoot myself. That's not noise. I mean, that's just noise. Yeah. I, I made get, anywhere well and they're and they're missing out on yeah. well i don't know that's not fair but it, to me you know what music was was well, it changed your life yeah. I mean, music changed my life in a lot of ways please you know? elaborate on that though I want, i'm actually doing a documentary we're going around recording studios now with a band and why it's so important to come to a studio as opposed to and you seemed like you were about to explain that well it's it's interesting because i when I was listening, when I was in the studio, it was it was a job, and I had a lot of responsibility. So, to listen and also do my job was not a luxury that I had. I mean, sure, you could listen to bad notes or something, but to actually listen to a song in a situation where you could enjoy it was not in the studio. I mean, and some of the songs that like Prince cut. I never listened to until I went home and I went, oh my God, those are amazing. You know, but I never, it was at home in a, a relaxed situation that I was able to actually take it in. Cause there was a lot of responsibility. You were talking about, you know, 
I was responsible to you guys. I was responsible to the record company, to the artist, to everybody around the artist. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. in fact, somebody. You remember Mike Utley? He was a he was a keyboard player for. Um, I remember that name. Yeah, he yeah. was a keyboard player for Chris, sweetest guy. He okay. played with Jimmy Buffett too, but he um, he didn't recognize me at a party. He actually did not recognize me because he couldn't put work together with a social. Because my aspect. face was relaxed, he said <laughs> I looked like a totally different person. Yeah. When I was in the studio, I was because I don't know I was flying by the seat of my pants most of the time. You know, I was focused on every, you know, every detail there was, because I had to, and especially with Prince, because I had no assistant. I was the yeah. assistant and the engineer. That's right. You know, and the gopher and the you know whatever he needed. So. And he always billed himself as a producer, right. artist, engineer. Yeah. Uh, just a few more questions uh, about the VH1 sessions. There's a couple urban little legends. Like, do you remember a prank that uh, Eddie had played on Ted where he came in and acted erratic and took a mandolin and destroyed it in the studio? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story about it where apparently they set it up so that they could have Ed he's he's playing something and he gets frustrated because it doesn't sound right and you you knew that he was usually pretty good natured and and liked to have oh, fun yeah. so uncharacteristically he freaks out and destroys this thing <laughs> and and then apparently you know Ted was freaking out because he's like oh what am i going to do here and but then it turned out it was all a setup. He just wanted to be able to to do this thing to get a rise out of out of Ted in the studio. So I, there's something about that in in the in his book. But but there's all these pictures of Ed with the a mandolin. With the mandolin, I don't you know, remember that. But now it's in pieces somewhere. Yeah. Nobody knows. Well, and I was sick for ten days, so I missed a lot. Yeah, <laughs> or unless it was on a later record. And or unless it, it could have been. Later yeah, it could have been. I mean, they were when you know Ted was a seasoned. He was a musician and then he was a producer. So he yeah. was well seasoned. And I think these guys really, in the first album, they really, you know, respected him. I think later on they kind of loosened up and they were one of the guys. But, you know, in the beginning it was, Ted was, I mean, it was fun. It wasn't that, but you could feel the. Well, he was the ringmaster. Yeah. I mean, he was the producer. Yeah. And he got the sound. Yeah. On, on the record. He ran, yeah. he ran the sessions. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think, I mean, I felt that they were kind of young and green, and I love that kind of thing when people are excited about the studio and they're not all grumpy and crabby. Don't and you know who I am? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have, a, did you have a, uh, a sense later on? So you worked on the record, you saw them do it, you thought, oh, these guys are fun, but then it blows up and they become this huge band. Did it ever change your opinion of the time, or you were still like, well... It was just another day. No, I watched. I, you know, I, I was privy to a, quite a bit of that. I mean, you know, you watch people young and hungry, yeah. and then you watch. I mean, Toto is a yeah. perfect example. Their first album, they were young and hungry to do it themselves. They were seasoned studio musicians, but they were, you know, ready to take off. And then you watch them later, where it's just like, oh God, you know. I mean, it's a grind. Studio is not a fun party place. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a lot of work 
So, but it can be a place that has amazing things happen. At, oh, it at does. Times where you just absolutely can't believe that you captured something. Oh, I know. I mean, it stands the test of time. It, and the trouble is, the longer you're in it, the the how can I put this? By the time you make it, you're so burned out, you just don't even care. You know, <laughs> I mean, those magical times become less and less and less with your fatigue. And that's that's basically what it is. You're, you are so exhausted that- That makes perfect sense, yeah. Yeah, it's just like you're just done, you know? And I was fried after 10 years and two jobs and, you know, what, five years of Prince, day and night and records and- <sighs> Crazy. He, yeah. he, he killed me, he burned <laughs> me out. <laughs> well, one hang. question about the, that, and then like the psychological aspect of, of working and being stressed out and, and not getting enough rest, but also being inspired because there's creative things going on. What's the process like? How do you learn to work with people that are could be creative geniuses, but maybe socially retarded? I mean, like they, they can't <laughs> like actually, <laughs> yeah, you know, like they, they can't function properly and they don't treat people properly, maybe on the spectrum. Who, who knows? Well, there's a lot of us in this business. I think that that's where we are comfortable. I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm on the spectrum, but my mother was. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people. This is a safe, I mean, this is, I, I just remember that when you came in here, it was like a protected area. And it you could get really crazy or you could get really creative. Mm -hmm. And I saw both sides. I saw crazy, crazy, crazy in the studio. And I saw very creative, you know, Prince was not crazy. He was not, it was all work and creative energy. That's all he did. Plus he was a real straight guy. Yeah. When I knew yeah. him, he really was, you know, I mean, his songs were nasty as heck, but um, do you remember it was, was it Debbie? Who was the girl at the front? The blonde. Debbie Prusa? Was she the one? The, uh, she worked under Bill. She was the traffic girl. No, it was the one after her. It was after Bill. Because oh. they uh, Prince was working at Hollywood Sound. And yeah. his they had technical problems. And he, wanted, he, he didn't like anything technical went wrong. It really pissed him off. So they called here and they asked if we had a studio open for was the weekend. Was that just by chance? Yeah. Because they were right down the street. Yeah. So... Um, they said yes, and I was available. They said, will you work the weekend? And I said, sure, you know, overtime, that's great for me. And um, the receptionist up there said, Peggy can't work with him on the weekend alone because there's nobody around on the weekends, you know. There might be a maintenance guy come in and oh, out or on call. About it, huh? She said, he writes really dirty songs about giving head and stuff. And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> who am I? Who is this going to be that comes into the studio? Because believe me, you know, 10 years in the studio, you pretty much fended off everything. And yeah. um, I thought, oh, God, this is going to be quite a weekend. And in walks this polite, shy, little guy. You know, 23 that I could, years old. Yeah, I could barely get a sentence out of him of what he needed from me, you know. And finally, I think we worked about a week. We worked more than the weekend. And finally, I got in his face and I said, you know what? You're going to have to talk to me. I can't work for somebody that just mumbles something. You're going to have to talk to me. So I thought, well, that'll be the end of that. You know, I mean, this I'll yeah. never see him again. And then he came back with 1999. So that, that was, was controversy then. 
That was controversy. Was it? That's how and, it all started. Yeah, and we were just finishing it up. We did so a few overdubs and some mixes, and then we were just finishing it up. And I thought, well, okay, bye. I'll never see him again. And I thought his music was kind of clever, a little immature, you know, a little juvenile, but yeah, it was kind of, you know. And it was just him at that point. Yeah. No and one it else was, was coming in. Uh, his girlfriend, Susan, at the time, Susan Muncy, would come oh, in with had a him. Oh, girlfriend then. Yeah, okay. every once in a while. And um, that was initially this room, too. Yeah. This, so the first time you met Prince saw him was in, this in room. Studio 3. Yeah. And he was very quiet. Very quiet. I couldn't get, I couldn't hear him. It wasn't audible. Was like, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll, I'll never work with him again, you know, because I was, I was in his face. It was, he had that big lock of hair that hung down right there. And he would just kind of mumble me over there. It's like, oh God. So um, I thought I'll never work with him again. And sure enough, he came back and I worked with him steady for the next five years. So what do you think attracted him, uh, you know, because he was at Hollywood Sound for the majority, he would bounce around to studios, but then he made this a permanent place. Was it the sound, your techniques, um, um, I've, Studio 3 being so I've examined here? that a lot, and I think, first of all, I think he liked, he liked women, you know? I mean, and that male-female energy works. It does work. Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. And I think he didn't really... <sighs> women don't have any ego in the studio. I mean, you, you just don't. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have to deal with that male kind of ego. We just did, Susan Rogers used to say we spoiled and we never said no. Just we, did what he wanted. Yeah, we yeah. just did what he wanted. And he liked us. He loved my piano vocal sound, you know? I mean, do you remember that song, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore? That's a great story, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was, he got me drunk. I never drank around him because mm -hmm. I had to be sharp. And uh, he told me to order, he asked me what I drank, and I drank Remy at the time, and he ordered a bottle of Remy and ordered him something. And I said, no, I, I can't drink in the studio. And he said, drink it. So yeah. I did, and I got buzzed, and we cut How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore?, and for 30 years, I looked for that. I didn't know where it was. If it, I knew it was a B-side. I didn't know what it came out on because I didn't buy singles. Yeah, I didn't know. And I finally found it at Amoeba up in the balcony of B-sides of artists. And I took it home and played it. I'm like, yes, it was so was it. good. Yeah. He was amazing, you know. That was cut in two? Two. Two. Yeah. Why were you guys in two? Was this bit? Were you walking around or was this? I think 1999 was mostly cut into. Really? Wow. Yeah, because three wasn't available. I think um, Toto was here. I don't remember who was here. Toto, I think it was Toto. Toto used to work in here a lot. Yeah, yeah because Toto made fun of me for working with him. Because I knew all the guys, you know, really? and they said, you really work with him? It's like, yeah. Haters. Yeah. So it, it, remember Lee Scalar? Uh -huh. He took me aside and he said, this guy's a genius. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, you know, he was an odd person he was, bird. Yeah. yeah he really was and he you know it wasn't tennis shoes and a sweatshirt for the studio like most of us you know i mean i wore t-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes you know do, do you ever remember him interacting much with people around here i don't mean uh, i mean other artists like share or, or on the basketball court because i remember a him little, out there a little but he was so shy yeah and i remember um that was when he was getting popular Mm -hmm. And David was working with the Bengals. David, David Kahn, Kahn and David and yeah. David Leonard were working with the Bengals, and they came over and asked me for a song. 
if he would give Susanna Hoffs a song. Oh, that's Manic Monday? Yeah. Oh. And it was like, huh. And he, he did that. Um, David was working with somebody else, and I'm not going to tell you the name. But um, so I, again, asked if, if he wanted to meet her and maybe give her a song. And she was in Studio 3, and we were in Studio 2. And so we kind of set up the meet, and she was walking down that hallway and who's she's, she, who's she? I'm not going to say it, but, oh. and, and she was from, she's, <laughs> okay. she's from New York. Uh-huh. And Prince came out, he came out of studio too. And he said, Ooh, one of them loud broads. And he went one of them back loud broads. Really? <laughs> Just, that's it. <laughs> that always made me laugh so oh. Not dealing with her. <laughs> one, one of them loud broads. Yeah. So to get a song from him, like he had to okay every note. If it wasn't him that was producing it, so David Kahn had to check out, I mean, he had to approve it before he would let them release it. Oh, so he would let them uh, listen. He'd he would listen, listen to everything after and they- And then okay it, and then David could continue. And they did a great job on that song. That's they great. One of really big, did big a good songs. job. Yeah. And I got to work on that too. I got to work on the bangles because I was finished with him. So I worked. Yeah, I always wondered if you worked on the bangles or, or the go-go's. The here. bangles. Bangles. Yeah. Okay. Would he so he calls back to the studio and is coming in. He didn't do nineteen ninety nine or Little Red Corvette. That was with Don Batts in yeah. Minneapolis. He at did the, bring tracks from Minneapolis. In fact, some of the hits. Just those two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, nineteen ninety nine he brought two. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine and Little Red Corvette. Yeah. And um and Little Nicky. Okay. That came from there too. And, you know, because I was always getting contacted when it was nineteen ninety nine to talk about it and i said i didn't cut that song i mean you know i did the album but i didn't cut that song it was don bat so i didn't take credit for it but yeah he he brought some stuff from minneapolis in his home studio he never stopped recording is that when he had like the basement home studio yeah Yeah, long before right well and david and i designed the domitio board for his home no for his home for a home studio because we knew exactly what he didn't need and what he want, you and know. And what he liked about this yeah. console. And so we helped design that. And uh, Dave Hampton, who was the technical uh, at at Paisley mm-hmm. after it went down and then they were bringing it back up, yeah. said that was the only board that still worked. Wow. <laughs> and that board's still at Paisley? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Domitio was a, that was great. So. Yeah. He's still, still alive. I know. Did he mention, though, initially when he had returned to do 1999, why he loved this room? I mean, obviously, we can all figure out that it was the sound, but was there certain things? He just worked, 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 worked. It wasn't like it wasn't like he came in and said, good morning. How are you? How was your weekend? <laughs> you know, he never even said goodbye. Let's get to work. Yeah. I mean, he would come in, make his cup of coffee and start in on the drum machine or come out here and play the piano and. You know, it wasn't like chatty, chatty. We didn't comb each other's hair and talk about anything. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't. Was Purple Rain written on the piano right behind me right here? The 1907 Steinway. That's amazing. Do you remember the first time you heard him working on it? He was playing. He would come out here and play the piano for hours. We'd have a song that we were mixing oh. and uh, or doing something. And everything was always set up for him to go. You know, the mics and everything stayed. Now, the board had to change because it wasn't big enough to do both. So um, 
he would come out, he would just stop, we would stop mixing and uh, he would come out and start playing the piano or pick up the guitar. Usually it was the piano. He spent hours playing. It was, I loved to listen to him play the piano. Mm. And then you could hear something coming together and it was like, oh shit, <laughs> oh shit. And I'm gonna sure. be here longer. <laughs> and he, then he would say, put up some fresh tape. So you always had fresh tape. You always had all of his, that we all the songs that we were working on and fresh tape because he would just, all of a sudden a song would hit him. And so I would throw the board over to live and if he were on the drums, I, I still have it too. I had a, a Sunset Sound track sheet that I roughly put my EQ for the drums. And oh, I would madly like... Get that set up. Yeah. And he would say, you're blowing the groove. Hurry up, hurry up. It's like, oh my God. So back then he was playing every instrument. Yeah. Sometimes Sheila would come in, you know, once he met Sheila, she would come in and play the drums. And it was nice to see him play with somebody, but he basically liked to just go off in his own head hmm. and yeah. yeah there's a lot of recordings on youtube now of him just sitting for 30 minutes just going through raspberry beret uh, untitled stuff and the most fascinating thing for me is you know like purple rain that's 90 percent all him i mean there's some bass from brown and mm -hmm. sheila but i mean that's him on every single instrument he sat here and was playing that song and then stopped and said i'm gonna make a movie and was like Okay. Oh, they just came to him. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna make. And then he it. left and made Purple Rain. They cut it live, and he brought it back, and that's when we started working on Purple Rain. Wow. Yeah. The rest is history. Yeah. That was huge. That was huge, and that was when yeah. the bodyguards came, and the entourage, yeah. and the people, and the attitude, and. Mm. And the accountants. And yeah, the, and know. yeah, I remember his accountant took us out, and oh, it's just yeah, it just got so big, it got impersonal too i mean that's but it, mostly for 1999 it would just be you two in yeah. here and then when it's in purple rain sessions whether you said there'd be additional people but was that only on fridays sometimes kind of? sometimes there would be people and then sometimes there, there wouldn't be you know like we cut when doves cry just the two of us mm. that was the longest longest days i mean i, I think Duane showed me the three work days orders. It was like, oh just Seventy well, while, you're, yeah. while you're on the subject of when doves cry, why doesn't it have a bass? Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I remember just I you know he said he uh, he usually started with a drum track and he did with that one and then he started building and then it was like okay he's he's fine on his own I think you know so it got big it got so big and when. So when there's too much input for me, I just kind of shut down. And I remember kind of shutting down on that that song because it just seemed like a wank, you know, just like, oh, my God, here we go, the raging guitar and the raging synths and everything. It seemed so overproduced to me. Mm -hmm. And then I remember as the night went on, it was the last night we were mixing it. As the night went on, things started coming out. And... Oh, he's pulling them out. He kind of unproduced it, if you can possibly do that. And then the last thing he did is he punched that bass out and he smiled at me and he said, ain't nobody going to believe I do this. And he did. <laughs> and that's what, and you know what's interesting is I forgot this until Suzanne Edgren, after he passed, Suzanne Edgren called me and she said, do you remember it was 7.30 in the morning and you were just finishing up 
and you grabbed me and said, come listen to this. This is amazing. And it was when doves cry. And she was in here at 730 in the morning? Yeah. Wow. And I was just, he, we were finished and he had, he was, you know, I was cleaning up for the night. And she said, do you Long remember night. you let me listen to that? Yeah. So, so the other thing that's really interesting about that track is that guitar sound that he did on there has octave divider and he's playing in a style that in some ways is not that far from Van Halen at, right. at moments, you know? Right. So do you know if, if he had any run-ins? Did they ever meet Edward here at Sunset Sound? I think Prince, it really bothered him too that he was underestimated as a guitar player. And I thought he was an amazing guitar player. Yeah, but he, he really was, was really underestimated as a guitar player. He could mm. pick up any piece of shit and make it sound good. I mean, he really could. Yeah, he definitely was a great musician overall and, and played guitar really well. That particular song is different than his other guitar playing, though. He definitely was... Really for, rock and roll on Yeah, that for one. some yeah. reason, he went over overboard with that one in a good way. I know. Uh, but do, do you know what inspired that at all? Well, and I think, too, that that's when, you know, there was conflict with the synthesizers, the wall of synthesizers and everything. It was just all too big. And, you know, so he started taking stuff out. And then you have that. I mean, even my sister loved When Doves Cry. I mean, it was a very unique song. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I just, it was it was nice to watch that process because usually he underproduced stuff. You know, it was very sparse, Yeah, the things that we did. You know, I mean, there wasn't that much on it, but that one, yeah. He just cared about the groove being there. And the technical stuff wasn't, he wasn't going to oh, do he hated three, five takes. Oh, God. And he hated it because on Purple Rain, we had to have two machines. And at that time, we had that Simpty. Oh, oh the dear. Tulak. God, yeah. I hated that thing. Oh, yeah, that was You'd push touchy. rewind and one would go one way, one would go yeah. the other. And he hated a delay. He hated delay. Technical delay, he would just get pissed off you could just cut the tension with a mm. knife so yeah nothing could go wrong technically and you could not say one of my favorite stories is we were doing purple rain and there were a bunch of people i remember window and lisa were here and Susanna was here and uh he came out and he said i need strings it's midnight i need <laughs> strings and i went okay thinking you know okay so i'll call you know, an arranger tomorrow morning. Tomorrow. And, and I said, when? And he said, now. And I went, I said, it's midnight. He said, get it. Swear to God. And I went, oh, shit. You know, I mean, string string sessions were like oh, rigid yeah. and, you know. Union. It, it was union. And boy, yeah. if you went overtime, those guys went out on their, to get their, their accountants to, you know, invest because they were going into overtime, you yeah. know. I mean, serious. But, um. So I remember, you remember Chunky, Novi, and Ernie? Yeah, sure. She had, they had just done something in Studio One, and I called up Novi, and I said, would you be interested in playing on a Prince record? And she said, yeah. And I, it was literally 12 o'clock. She was asleep. At midnight. Yeah. And oh I said, God. do you have a cello player? And she said, yep. I said, do you know a cello player? And I said, okay, can you come down? And she came down at 1 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my gosh. And they played till 3.30. And that was that was him. We never said no. I mean, you just made yeah. it happen. When the creative juices hit, you had to make it happen. And no matter what time did, it was. Did he appreciate that? <laughs> never told me. <laughs> I remember I asked him one time, I said, do you like my work? 
And he looked at me and he said, well, you're here, aren't you? It was like, that's the most you ever got. That was the compliment. And I remember (laughs) Wendy said that too. She just wished once in a while he would say, good job, you know, and he never did. He didn't have that in him. Do you think, I mean, obviously these tracks are just amazing and the best, but do you think they would have benefited more if you would have, if he would have spent more time on them and they could have been even better? Yeah. But he wouldn't work like that. Did you ever su- make suggestions or were you just doing what he said? <laughs> no. Because, <laughs> I mean, you were technically trained and he was not. And you would really have been like a senior advisor almost to him, but yeah. no yeah. advising Prince, no. even in no. the controversy era. No, and I think, yeah, in the controversy area, you know, that, that era, I didn't really care. But by the time 1999 came around, I realized, you know, he was serious about making music. And 1999 was a pretty pretty good record i thought you know and then it became double which he never planned on either he just kept creating so um and then in between that there was the time and vanity six so i never knew what we were working on i could tell by who was coming in what we were working on but sometimes we were working on his stuff instead you know and he would bring morris or somebody in so yeah it was just always you know just you were just working away. <laughs> Did we have backline then? Or we would have had the rental place, right? For what? For uh, instruments. Um, well, SIR was down the street. So, so he they, would tell you what he wanted. There would be a drum set always in he here. He had though. his stuff. And then okay. he has. He, he had his stuff. In. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I remember the cases coming. You know, I remember his cases coming. I, one of the things is I we had this weird connection that I would dream about him. And I would sit up in the morning and say, holy shit, he's in town. And Dave would say, it's okay, sweetie, <laughs> go back to sleep. And then, you know. Get the call. I'd get the call about yeah. two hours later that he was in town. And that was kind of the way you, you worked. And then I knew he was, uh, my life was his for the next few months. Wow. And then just as suddenly as he came into town, he would leave. I'd drag myself in to, for another session, put the coffee pot on, and they'd say, pack it up, he's gone. So... Did you feel special professionally that he wanted to work with you, even though he was, you know, standoffish and quiet and aggressive? Did I? No. I mean, yeah, kind of, but. I mean, I would. If Prince had me on anything or any of that person of that caliber, I would feel like, you know, I feel very special to be here. Yeah, but isn't that kind of a cognitive you know, dissidents because he, you know, he kind of would treat you like shit, but he always requested you. So what's that? You know, I guess that goes back to the answer he gave you. You're here for a reason. Yeah. But there was never, I mean, he was mean. He could be mean. So on that subject, a couple things. If he's mean, you said before, like in the studio, you saw really creative and you also saw crazy. You said he wasn't crazy, but... I want to know what constitutes as crazy in the studio. Well, there, there's a lot of things. Like I was working with him when he got booed off the stone stage. Oh, yeah. You know, that would, you know, he got shit thrown at him, you know. Um, and that was pretty bad. That would humiliate you. And he was somebody who didn't didn't share his feelings. So when he was upset, <laughs> <laughs> you kind of just had to guess or get out of his get out or try to stay out of his way. And I remember one time he came in, we were working on the time and you could always hear his boots through the courtyard. 
and I'd have the door open. I could hear his boots and Clicking. I could tell yeah. by the way he was walking. <laughs> and I looked out and I went, he had no shirt on, which he never did. He had those pants that buttoned on the side and yeah. two buttons were undone. He had a bandana tied around his head and one around each knee. And I went, oh, <laughs> fuck. He came in with an attitude that he, he it was literally all day long. He wrote me just nasty comments about white people didn't have any rhythm and hustle it up, you know, and just oh, on and on and on. And I remember it was um, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam. And Jimmy looked at me and it was like, so sorry, but so glad it's not one of us because he could just pick somebody up and, you know, pick them out and just all day long. And he wasn't really horrible to me. I know some of the stuff that he said to Susan was really bad and other people. But um, I found out later that somebody, not me, but somebody had lost one of the time tapes and he was furious. Oh really? Do you remember yeah. that? Who that was? No, and I oh. don't know who it was, Oof. and it wasn't me, but I got the brunt of that attitude mm. that day. And then he could be really sweet. He'd come in and say, "Let's go see a movie," and I'd say, "Oh no, you go ahead. I'll be fine here." And he'd say, "Peggy, I got us a limo," and it's like, "What?" Yeah. So, what did you go see? Oh, it was Diva. It was a you know, here it is. I'm sitting here. He's he's all dressed. Yeah. With a hat and a, you know, three-piece suit and black <laughs> lace out of his pocket, and I've got jeans and t-shirt on. I'm riding in this huge stretch limo. It's like, oh my god, you know. And then he sent for me to go on the road with him. You know, I mean, do you remember that? No, to do sound. No, it was um, it was a 1999 tour, uh -huh. and I think he was an oddity. You know, the way he dressed, he performed in the studio. He didn't just. You know, I mean, he performed and danced and stuff in the studio. So I think because he was different and he could read that on my face, you know, maybe he wanted me to know who he really was. So he sent for me. It was a Christmas present. He sent for me to come out on the road on the 1999 tour over New Year's Eve in Houston and Dallas. And I was I got to stand up at the at the sound, you know, with Cubby, mm -hmm. which is the best place in the house for a sound engineer, sure. and um, watch him perform. I had never seen him perform. Oh, that was the first time. I had never seen him perform, oh. and I was completely blown away. All made sense then? It did make sense. Oh, he literally okay. made me go like this. It was like, oh my God. And that was at the top of his game. Yeah, that was yeah. 1999. Yeah. And he was playing to his people too. I mean, that Dallas, that, the energy in those crowds were amazing. Wow. So yeah, that was that was quite a treat. I have a question from the 1999 album DMSR. You're credited with, with background vocals, mm -hmm. so you did sing on that. Mm -hmm. Is that him forcing you to do it, or of course, <laughs> of course, <laughs> you will do it. Yeah. Yes. Was that in this room as well? No, it was in two. Okay. And it was Jamie. It was Jamie. Oh, what was her name? It was his two managers. Cavall oh. Ruffalo. Yeah, but it was it wasn't them. It oh, was gotcha. the girl. It was Carol McGovney and Jamie. What was the Jamie's last name? I don't remember. Can't remember. I want to say Star, but that was no, that was him. Yeah, that was him. <laughs> anyway, we were out there singing. Uh -huh. Just because he wanted a female vocal right on the spot there, and, and... probably laugh at us. Yeah, because white people don't have any rhythm. I always thought that was funny because he had a white drummer. 
You know, it's like hmm. he did one time. He it was it was a Friday or Saturday night, and I think he had Jesse Johnson with him, and um, he wanted me. I think it was 1999 because it was Studio Two, and he wanted me to put some oratones out there, and they brought these little girls in, and he wanted to see if they could if his music was danceable, I think that that was the premise on the, uh, what they came in here See for. if they could dance to it? Yeah. They were really cute, little short skirts, you know, cute little girls. And um, anyway, I set up the speakers and they started dancing to his music. And th these guys were making fun of him. You know, I mean, you know, I mean it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, go out there and dance, Peggy. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> no. Nope. I mean, if I tap, if I did this to some of his songs, and how could you not? He would turn around and go. <laughs> so I just sat there, kind of like, okay, so yeah, you didn't, you didn't feel his music. Well, in front of him, that was one of the things that he did sometimes in shows. There's videos you see him. He'll be playing an acoustic guitar and he'll be singing. And he's got a great internal pulse, great groove. And then when people start feeling like, hey, I'm gonna. Get in on this, and the audience starts clapping and go, uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. That was just pretty funny because yeah. like most entertainers yeah. wouldn't wouldn't do that. But I will say that it's weird. If you're on stage and you see somebody that's out of rhythm, you visually you almost your brain starts making you go, Am I supposed to go to the right. The right. right. But you're playing and you're like, oh, it's like yeah. you're falling over because your brain is right twisting inside out i've seen it happen because when i've played my dad's music which has a lot of odd time stuff does, and, yeah. and people have no idea where one is uh you know you definitely see like the odd right like you know people like they're trying i know and that's you know a lot of people don't have rhythm it's just it's it, you're born with it or you're not you know i mean that's if you if you watch some people just cannot catch i think they could be taught but mm. Yeah, you go to concerts and it's like, oh, geez, stop. <laughs> but I think people don't realize that it if you're on stage, yeah, yeah. It, you oh, have to look away. Right, you know, right. Because it, it can totally change. You know, it's happened to me a few times. Plus there's a delay, you know, on yeah. what you hear and what you see too. So if yeah. it's a big arena. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, now, totally different subject, but... I want to know when you were working in the early days and you're setting up and you're doing things like making sure people eat food when they should and stuff like that. What are the kinds of things that, that you saw, like the, the behaviors in the studio? Like, I'd be curious to know, like, what did Van Halen live on food wise? God, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember that. Because I'm sorry. David Lee Roth was notably always in really good condition, really looked healthy but apparently was eating mcdonald's all the time we and always ate shit i mean that was the studio you yeah. know i think yeah. i think i went remember that little burger place down on sunset near guitar center oh yeah the that little and the, the, yeah uh, the sunset lady grill. had yeah the lady had a full yeah. beard and shit yeah. yeah i used to get food from there all the time pinks oh i had oh i brought pinks back oh, yeah, one time pinks. i've never eaten pinks again um teddy the wanted chili. pinks oh i and i that Hot dog just sat in my stomach. It, yeah. No, there wasn't much choices around. No, there, there weren't any choices, you know? Yeah. yeah. I used to send for Prince. I used to, there was a great soul food. Remember Greens? Yeah. That wasn't very good soul food, but at least it was close. 
Poor Mike Cluster. I used to send him down to um, Maurice's Snack and Chat on Pico and Fairfax. Oh, that's they had the from? best food, mm. and Prince ate Popeyes too. We you could get a decent you know chicken meal, but Maurice's Snack and Chat was really good. She was a really good. <laughs> Did they cook. have Roscoe's at that time? Did he they had have? Roscoe's? Yeah. yeah, I mean Roscoe's was up on Gower. La Brea, right? Mm, no, where was it? Off of Sunset and Gower, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they had Roscoe's. But what about people like Elton John? You know what? It, we didn't eat with Elton. <laughs> <laughs> we drank. <laughs> he has a chapter devoted to you in I his know biography. Yeah. It was funny because I was working. Who was the Chris Chris Thomas was the was the producer on that. Oh. On okay. this song that we were doing. And it was I can't remember who the engineer was, but um Stevie Wonder came in to play the harmonica solo on um, I guess that's why they call this the blues. Oh, really? And he had a handler with him and everybody was real nervous, you know, because it was Stevie and everybody was all nervous. And so um, I was sitting at the tape machine. God, who was the engineer? Schmidt? It, no, it wasn't Schmidt. Uh, Bill Schnee? No, it wasn't Bill Schnee. Um, Anyway, he did the harmonica solo and he wanted to punch in. And it was that, you remember how the Dolby's had that delay? Mm-hmm. Oh, dear God. So... um the guy looked at me and he said, okay, Stevie's going to do this when he wants you to punch in and this, or this when he wants you to punch out, which seemed totally backwards to me. Yeah. And everybody, you could feel the whole room just kind of go, oh shit. And he looked straight at me. So it was like, okay. I don't know. It was that moment where you really just zen in and I, I can still hear that punch to this day. And you did it? I did it and I punched out too. I didn't clip anything, you know, and with that Dolby, you didn't know whether you clipped something until you played it back. Yeah. So we got it. Now that now that I listened to it, the end was pretty big. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was the out that wasn't, but the end was pretty big. And um anyway, you could just feel the whole room kind of go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And I got a I got a gold record for that punch. Well, but what's crazy is you know, there, there may be a lot of people that are from our generation that know what you're talking about, but there's a lot of people that won't know yeah. how how life-threatening that could feel oh. to be like, okay, you have a major musician in the studio. There's a performance that exists, but they don't like this one little part. Yeah. And you got to press play and record, you know, to get them in and out. And, and get them out. Yeah. But you want to just remove that one bit, which they have to play along to the part reasonably well so that it matches when it comes in it's not computer stuff yeah. where you can crossfade yeah so the the pressure on you for something like that would have been palpable. oh it's huge and think of the editing yeah. a grease pencil and a razor blade i mean pro tools it's like oh my god i wish i I'd have had this <laughs> yeah it's, it's cutting pretty tape wild because you know technology moved so quickly with with a lot of those things but some of the most classic records didn't have anything close mm -hmm. to that technology and you had to rely on razor blade edits and you know to hear skill, symbols right. and things like okay that symbol Carrying is gonna it. mm -hmm. it's it's not gonna work that edit you can't make because the symbol will ruin it i was doing an edit one one day with prince and i what was i think it was god i can't remember what album it was but he got into edit, editing and so he said okay take that chorus out and put this here and that there and and then he said okay now put that chorus where's the other chorus that you took out and i went uh 
it was on I was stepping on floor. You know, because that's what yeah. you did is you put yeah. this course around your neck and then that verse and then it was like, okay, there's another verse. And, you know, you had to mark it with grease pencil. And he said to take it out. So I took it out and I was walking on it. Oh, it pissed him off. But <laughs> I did it. I did an edit with him one time and I actually kept it on a matchbook for a long time. It's going 30 ips per second, right? And he had me, he said, that's not, I was cutting on the kick. But that's easy, you know, that's a nice big boom. And he said, no, that's not right. Half that. So I halved it. So it was like this. And then he said, it's still out. Half that again. I literally was taking this much tape out. And it was like, I think he's fucking with me. But once we got it, he said, that's perfect. So yeah, literally like taking little tiny, little tiny shavings out. I think there were eight of them. Uh, My God. And I didn't, I never knew whether Those he was fucking with me or he heard it. <laughs> That's yeah, crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah it was hard. Nobody knows that anymore. Well, what about the the process of him getting into being able to handle recording his vocals on his own? Weren't you instrumental in, yeah, in that process? That. Well, the thing is, he had a home studio, so he was pretty adept to to you know punching in and stuff like that. So he, I mean, he he knew what was going on in the studio. But you can't sing and play guitar and punch. You can't, you know, you can't play bass and punch. Yeah. So, yeah, he needed me. And and so when we were doing that, I can't even remember what song it was, but it was like in the 13th or 14th hour. And I was just losing. I was hungry. I was losing concentration. I was really tired. And we were having to communicate through, you know, space and glass. Or, it was right yeah. here. And he was standing up there. And I remember he. I missed a punch or clipped something and he went, Ugh. You're getting tired, aren't you? And I said, I am. I'm sorry. And he said, I, I need to finish this. And I said, well, you know what? I can set you up in the control room and you can just keep going. And he said, really? And I said, sure. So I drug the, the microphone, the U47 in there and hung it across the the um, console and, mm -hmm. you know, pulled the monitor down, gave him some headphones. And he loved that because he created, you know, you don't realize how much a vocal... I realized that without John, how much a vocal is so much a part of an instrument. You know, it's not just lyrics. They're actually making it a, really a part of the song. And when they stack it and, you know, harmonize with it, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. And he could do that without having to communicate um, his process to me. He could just do it himself. So, so but it started in that control room. Right here. So he I can here. still see his face yeah. saying... Oh, you're getting tired, aren't you? <laughs> but what's that like to be sitting here right now and know that he was once right over here and you were there? Like, do you have this weird feeling of being like in a time machine where you can just completely go back to do that? You know how many years and how many bands I spent with in this studio? <laughs> Lots. Yeah. Not just yeah. Prince. Not just Prince. No. Yeah. That's what I say to Toto Paul and, all the yeah. time. Paul always says that. I'm like, Paul, don't you know that? Eddie Van Halen was standing right here and I think you know it's they're just artists and they're doing their thing some are bigger than others and it's just so repetitive that it's naturally well and it's not like you know what's going on out there if you spend 15 18 hours a day in the studio weekends included the last thing you want to do is go and listen to popular music you know it's <laughs> like I don't want to go listen to any music you know so we didn't really know what was going on out there we didn't know who was big i mean you might somebody huge you know yeah of course 
or somebody from your past. Yeah, of course. But you didn't know what was going on. Yeah. I mean, you went home and took your clothes off and fell in bed. If you brush your teeth and wash your face, you were lucky. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, it was grueling work. Yeah, you wouldn't be sitting on the beach listening to the radio every day for... No. In fact, I didn't listen to anything, anything for five years when I got out of the studio. Afterwards? I didn't wow. listen to any music. I could not. I was saturated. That does make sense, though, because a lot of times people say, hey, what are you listening to? I'm like, nothing. Yeah. 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 You're like, I don't have time for just like <laughs> the luxury of time to just sit and listen to music. Yeah. It just doesn't really happen in, in modern life so much. It, it became something that was forced in the background for a lot of people. And if I listen to music, I, I have to only be listening to music. Right. I can't, Me too. I, I just don't like it just being that. Me either. It's, it's like a, having a fly buzzing around the room. I, I need to. God, it's like, nice to meet yeah. somebody like that. Because I know people that can read and listen to music. It's like, I got to do one or the other. Yeah. I got to read or I got to listen to music, but I can't do this both. Do you remember when he brought that bed in? Yeah. I remember when Craig went out and bought that. Oh, he was yeah, just in a tizzy bed, about uh, that. Bed, he, and, and he was like really jazzed. Craig was like, yeah. oh, I get to buy Prince a bed. Oh. I get. To, I went and got the sheets. I went to Walmart or wherever oh, yeah. he went. He oh. got these purple sheets. And oh. I remember him setting it up in here. And he was like so proud. And everybody and I'm like, was just. what is that doing in here? I know. And everybody <laughs> was just tittering, thinking, ooh, you know, you know, go, rock and roll. I go, that's a little creepy. You know what he got it, it for? It was in the live room, though? This it was one? right it here. It was right here. Okay. Yeah. Yes. You know what he got it for? For me. No. So I could take oh, a nap. Oh, that was for you. Like I could ever lie down okay. and take a nap. I yeah, wow. that was for me. Yeah, he'd be screaming in there for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like a, a, at one point, Yoko had a bed at Abbey Road. And, I bet she did. And they just, uh, you know, they'd be working and they just had to have a space for her to be in the same to go to place, sleep. like reading magazines, lying in a bed. Yeah. Well, I didn't have that luxury because I had to be in here. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you said that earlier that um, you didn't quite know when he was coming into town. You, you no, just get a call. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm trying to think about how he had the studio pre-booked. Me too. And why it, didn't anybody warn me? You know, looking through the invoices, I did find a lot of cancellation charges. So I'm thinking maybe he just block booked the studio open-ended for weeks or months and like he would come he would leave he would come he would leave yeah. but he, they they just paid for it yeah well think about it he didn't have a producer right he didn't pay a producer royalties it was all him it was all going no to him. musicians no musicians yeah so it was all going to him and these big hits all the money was coming to him yeah so yeah i mean so, i remember ray parker jr i think it was um 1999 where he came down because Warner Brothers didn't like the fact that he didn't have a producer and he didn't have somebody watching over oh, him. Really? And so he, they sent Ray Parker Jr. To down to, well, chaperone. no, to kind of watch and see what he was doing. And Ray Parker went back and said, let him go. <laughs> He's got this. So, yeah, I mean, wow. he was so different the way he worked. Yeah. I mean, you know, most people write songs and then they have somebody, you know, they collaborate with a producer or an arranger or something. And then they come into the studio and they do this kind of thing. You know, he didn't. It was all in his head. I never knew what we were working on. In fact, Manic Monday, I tell that story. You probably heard it on a on an interview, but he called the session. We left at, I don't know, three or four in the morning and he called the session for noon. I thought, oh, thank God, you know, I've got some time. I got a call from Craig, mm -hmm. nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> He's coming in. He'll be in at 10. I was 
furious. Oh, wow. And I was in such a bad mood. It was like, you know, three hours sleep or two hours sleep. And I come down here and I'm just like pouting in Studio Two. You got and, a bandana on your left knee right. and on your right <laughs> no knee. no shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he came in and he you could tell that he was apologetic. Oh, But really? cocky. You know, yeah. I mean, in his way of of interacting with you, it was his way of, you know, kind of lightening it up. And he came in and he said, well, I said, if I dreamed another verse, I was going to come in. And I went, you dream your songs? And he said, yeah, sometimes. And that was Manic Monday. He dreamed that song. And okay. he and I have lyric sheets from him written on La Parc, you know, studio. I have it from, I mean, from. La Park Hotel, yeah. where he stayed sometimes. Mm -hmm. I have it on napkins. I have it on paper towels. I have his lyrics written on everything, back of track sheets. You know, he just, when it hit him, he just started writing it down on envelopes. Anything he could write his lyrics down. When it started coming, he just, he wrote it down. Plus, isn't there like dozens, if not hundreds of songs that he recorded here that never been released? Yeah. I always, I always said that just I'd be on his albums forever. Of material. Yeah. Well, that one member I told you, he, I needed a, a, a title for a song. Yeah. Because you guys needed it, and I was t so tired of fudging it. You know, when doves uh -huh. cry for the next, you know, yeah. three or four sessions. So he started to walk out, and I said, "Wait, wait, wait! I need a, I need a title for this." And he looks at me, and I said, "It's for the record company in the studio. I get in trouble if I don't do this." And he said, what's your middle name? And I said, Colleen. And he said, write that down. And off write he went. That down. So that, and that's, it, that song never went anywhere. You know what I mean? It's my, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere. And I think they've re even released it. But he did a, you know, my birthday song. Mm -hmm. He did, and then he stole the bass line because it never came out until I was so mad at Warner Brothers. It was my song. It was my birthday well, song. Well, I'll bet someday that all this stuff's going to come out of archives. And well, is, they released and is it. going to be released. They released oh, it they did release on this that. last go around. Okay. So, well, no, my birthday song. Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't know that. Because he came in on my birthday, and I was a little ticked off that he couldn't at least give me my birthday off. I mean, you know, <laughs> come on. I've worked with you for years now. He can't give me my birthday off. And he came in. He was totally dressed different. He had on jeans, which he never wore jeans. He had on a white T-shirt. He never wore a white T-shirt. And he had a motorcycle jacket on. In fact, he gave me that motorcycle jacket. Really? I still have it? I sold it. Oh. <laughs> I didn't care. Anyway, and he had on black, you know, high heel boots. And he came in. I thought, mm, well, that's interesting. And he came in. We started cutting this song. And it was a rockabilly tune, which made sense of the way he was dressed and everything. At the end of the night, I made him a cassette. And I gave it to him. And I was, you know, unpatching and cleaning up and taking trash out. And he looks at me and he smiles and he tosses it to me and says, happy birthday. And that was my birthday song. So he song. came in. His gift to me was a day in the studio with him with a song at the end. <laughs> yeah, you, you know? never had that before. <laughs> you know, I mean, to him, that was a huge gift. And it, yeah. it was a huge gift. Well, but he never told me until the very end. So I had a bit of an attitude problem. All right, let's break for a moment if it's okay. okay. Yeah, we'll order some lunch. <laughs>